The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. So please turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, as we consider today a picture of powerful prayer. Now as you're turning there, this passage before us gives us a a convicting and clear portrait of the powerful prayer of the early persecuted church. Despite what the secular world thinks, and sadly, even our brother's testimony was even alluding to it in many ways, what the sad modern church would often promote, that genuine prayer is listening for God, listening for God to speak to you. God-honoring prayer is not that. God-honoring prayer is grace-devised and gospel-driven communion with God. True prayer is designed by God to be a massive means of grace, a divinely designed discipline given by God for our spiritual maturation, our growth in godliness, which is our sanctification in holiness. God-honoring prayer, don't miss this, God-honoring prayer is dependency on, delighting in, and desiring for sovereign grace to the glory of God. This means that prayer is above all else an outward expression of our need for grace, an outward expression of our joy because of grace, and an outward expression of our deep desire for more grace. Prayer is more than mere talking to God. And prayer is not, I repeat it, is not simply listening for some hidden voice of God. Prayer is most clearly, here it is, responding to God's sovereign initiating grace by praising Him for and petitioning Him for more grace. And that's literally what Hebrews 4.16 says. Thus prayer, biblical, God-honoring prayer, is both a cry of our faith in God and a fruit of our faith in God, further proving that our faith is real and that our faith is God-centered and that our faith is totally in Him and not ourselves. This is why we are commanded to pray without ceasing. Commanded to pray without ceasing, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Therefore, here is, if you didn't track with me in that, here is a simple, a simple definition of God-honoring prayer. I repeat it again. God-honoring prayer is grace-derived, meaning it's a byproduct of grace. If you pray, it's because God has been gracious to you. All prayer, true prayer, is grace-derived and faith-driven, gospel-driven communion with God. Today, in our text before us, we will witness a picture of prayer. 
a picture of powerful prayer that is meant to encourage us, that is meant to instruct us, that is meant to equip us to pray more faithfully. In this passage, you will learn that powerful prayer always begins with who God is. Powerful prayer always trusts in what God says. And powerful, God-honoring prayer always pleads, pleads for God, with God, according to what He desires. How should we pray when gospel opposition and ministry persecution come? What is the right way to seek God's help when others seek our harm while serving Him? Where should our focus be in prayer when persecution looms over our life? These practical questions will be answered as we examine this picture of powerful prayer. Are you with me? You follow along now as I read this passage aloud. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. I'll read down through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together, was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Praise the Lord. Now, as we begin, you see right away we're in the book of Acts. This book was written by the Gentile physician Luke and really serves in many ways, as part two to the Gospel of Luke in providing, you'll remember this, Theophilus, an orderly account regarding the teaching and ministry of Christ and then the apostles and then the early church. Acts, you will likely know this so as a reminder to encourage us, Acts is historical narrative. It, it provides us with the powerful outworking of the Word of God as the gospel is preached and the church is birthed 
and the church grows, and the church spreads from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and even moves to the ends of the earth. Acts is an exciting book. It's an exciting book as the word works with with great power, and the gospel spreads nonstop across the then known world. Here in Acts chapter 4, we are at the very beginning of the church. The church was birthed just a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. As a matter of fact, what stands before us is the, don't miss it, the first opposition, the first opposition the church faces as it begins to grow. The church's response to this threat of persecution, it provides us a helpful picture of powerful prayer and really of faithful ministry while living under, in this context, governmental intimidation. There is much in ministry clarity. There is much of practicality here for all of us to learn today. Therefore, in this sermon, on this day, I want us to consider three aspects, three aspects of this powerful prayer so that we might learn how to pray God-honoring prayers while under persecution. Three words, three words to help you track through this narrative with me. Number one, context, context. Number two, content, content. And number three, consequence, context, content, consequence. That's kind of where we're going. We will see the context of this powerful prayer. We'll see that in verse 23. Then we'll focus primarily for the bulk of our time together on the content of this powerful prayer. That's found in verses 24 through 30. And then we'll wrap up with the consequence of this powerful prayer in verse 31. This is a very encouraging passage as it paints a powerful portrait of the early church, don't miss it, on her knees before Almighty God, and thus being used mightily by God. The church is always mightily used by God when the church is humbly on her knees. That's an undeniable fact, traced through Scripture, traced through history, and desperately needed today. May this passage encourage all of us, equip all of us, exhort all of us to do the same. The first aspect we see that we must consider in this text is the powerful context of this powerful prayer. Look now with me at verse 23, and it reads, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them, unquote. Here in this verse, we are forced to consider the context. This verse is literally, we're parachuting into it. We have to understand the context. We don't know what's going on here. So it's imperative that we slow down, I slow down, and I walk us through the context here so that we can rightly grasp and then apply what is going on here. Clearly, a portion of the early church is gathered to encourage and help one another. That's what we're seeing. But who has been released? What has been reported? And why does this matter? 
This is the context we must establish before we begin to examine and understand the powerful prayer that follows. First notice, this prayer is set in a context of celebration. It's a context of celebration. The context of this passage, now here you go, really begins in chapter 3, verse 1, where Peter and John are heading up to the temple to pray at about 3 p.m. It is there that they meet a lame man that was just alluded to in one of the songs we just sang, a lame man who was about 40 years old and who would be carried to literally the entrance of the temple, one of the entrances, so that he could beg, so that he could beg for alms. Upon seeing the man, both Peter and John called the man to look intently at them. They then proceeded to tell him, silver and gold we have not, but what we do have we give to you. They commanded the man to get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. Immediately, the man who had been lame for most, if not all of his life, he gets up, he walks, no, he runs, or as the song we just sang, he starts leaping for joy, overwhelmed as you and I would have been for what was going on. And he starts praising Yahweh. All the people were watching in amazement and wonder at what just happened. The man rightfully now becomes a leech upon Peter and John. He won't leave their side. He clings to them. And all the people run to them and gathered around them. What does Peter the preacher do when all these people start gathering? He starts preaching, as every good preacher would when he sees a crowd gathered. D.L. Moody did not invent that. Here's Peter saying, I'm gonna, we're going to gather a crowd and I'm going to preach. And he sees the opportunity and he preaches the gospel. Preaches the gospel to the people. He passionately explains that what has just happened to this man was not of their doing. They didn't do anything. This was not of their power or their piety. It wasn't who they are. It was all the work of God Almighty through faith in Christ alone. Peter then goes on to proclaim how, how Christ, the anointed, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the God-man, they rejected. They rejected Him, they denied Him, and they crucified Him. But God raised Him from the dead. And God sent them, Peter and John, to preach the hope of forgiveness for their wickedness. If they will only, as we've already heard multiple times this morning, if they would only repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation, they would be forgiven of even killing Christ. This was his sermon. Many people truly believed that day. The gospel that day spread and now, the text says, there's 5,000 within the early church. There were 120, 120 followers of Christ, according to Acts 1.15 in the beginning. That grows to 3,000 in Acts 2.41, which has now grown in light of the Word of God working by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of Peter to around 5,000 here, beginning in chapter 4. These are exciting times of celebration. Do you see the context? This is one of celebration. 
These are exciting times. The church is bulging. The church is adding more members than they have space for. This is encouraging. Things are happening. A man has been healed, but more than that, people have been saved. Thousands of souls have been saved from judgment. The context of this powerful prayer is set during a time of great celebration. As the early church is vibrant, as it ministers and grows to the glory of God, a vibrant church is used and blessed by God. And when it is, and you know this to be true, I was thinking of you, praying for you this week, thinking of this, a vibrant church, a church faithful to the Word of God, growing in holiness, standing upon the truth no matter what. That's a vibrant, it has life. That is a vibrant church. Listen, you know this to be true. A vibrant church is the most blessed place on the planet. There's nothing better. There's nothing more precious. Charles Spurgeon used to say, the church, the true church, is the most precious place in the world. A vibrant, growing church. There's nothing better. Reverse that. Our brother just gave his testimony. An unhealthy church, or should I say, a dishonoring church. A church that disrespects God because it doesn't open the word or flippantly preaches the gospel or better yet, wrongly preaches the gospel. Minions of Satan. That's the worst place to be on the planet. And so here we see this context of celebration. That's how chapter 4 starts, if we're going to get this right. But it's also, notice, a context of opposition. And isn't it interesting? Opposition almost always comes on the heels of celebration. That's one of the things that takes us by surprise when opposition comes. Because we're in the midst of celebration, we're in the midst of rejoicing, and then all of a sudden, man, the hammer drops. And the storm comes. And that's what we're seeing right here in the text. In chapter 4, the Jewish leaders show up. They show up on the scene when all the celebration is happening. And people are repenting and and weeping and gnashing of teeth in the sense of they're broken. And so they're, they're crying out in repentant faith. Souls are being added to the early church. And who immediately shows up? The Jewish leaders. They show up to the scene and they're not celebrating. They're not happy. Everyone else is praising God, but these men are grumbling and complaining, and they are greatly irritated by the preaching of Peter and John. These men were preaching a resurrected Christ, and that angered the Jewish rulers. So they had these men arrested and put in jail. Celebration now has turned to incarceration for the preaching of the gospel. Listen, dear loved ones. This is a universal law of life, an undeniable principle that covers the planet. It goes like this. Wherever the true gospel goes, churches are established and persecution is manifested. As the pure gospel goes out into this world, it always draws God's people and God's enemies. It always draws hatred, opposition, and persecution. This is how it has worked. And you could even say, by God's perfect design from the beginning, which is what our passage really is pointing to. This is how it worked then, and this is how it works now. And if you trace this out right here from Acts 4 all the way through the book of Revelation, you will see this truth. 
is undeniable. Two truths guaranteed in this life. The gospel will be preached as Christ builds his church and the church will be persecuted in an evil pursuit to silence and stop the church. What did Jesus promise in Matthew 16? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The implication of Jesus' words are manifested right here in this context. Even the gates of hell will not prevail. They, even though they won't prevail, they will try. They will still try to crush the church even though they can't. And that has been and always will be the history of the true church. Persecuted but not crushed. Oppressed but not stopped. Intimidated but not silenced. That's where we are in our context. Now look at the last part of the context. We've seen it's a context of celebration. We've seen it's a context of opposition, but go a little bit deeper. It's a context of intimidation, a context of intimidation. Starting now here at chapter 4, verse 5, we see the Jewish leaders bring out Peter and John, and they question them, and they ask them by what power they healed the man. Now, you got to love this again. This is, this is awesome. What does Peter do? They're asking them, well, how did you guys do this? Again, Peter goes, well, you know, I, I, I am kind of the head apostle. Why do you ask me? I mean, you know, I'm kind of the one in charge here. He, he doesn't look to himself. He doesn't build himself up. He doesn't try to take any personal accolades. What does Peter do? He does exactly what he's supposed to do. He does exactly what they don't want him to do. He preaches. So they're there to stop preaching. And what does Peter do? You're going to get a sermon. I mean, you've got to love this. Think about it, right? The sovereign grace of God. We're going to stop the church. And God goes, oh, go for it. Because I'm bringing the church to you. Oh, you think you're arresting them and putting them in prison? You're just now going to become their captive audience. Oh, you think you captured them? I just captured you. And I just had you put my preacher in jail to keep him safe. Thank you for that. I mean, this is, this is how this works. It's amazing. It's so encouraging. Peter explains how all that happened was obviously because of Jesus Christ. The one they crucified is the one God raised from the dead because the only salvation for man from his sins can only be through faith in the risen Lord alone. The wicked rulers throw the men in prison for preaching Christ, and when given a chance to speak, what do they do? They preach Christ. Never forget this. Opposition, opposition never eviscerates spirit-driven preaching, but only further invigorates it. That's what we're seeing here. These men are oppressed, and they don't stop preaching. They don't cower in fear from preaching. They say, where else can I preach? This is encouraging models for us that we must emulate on so many levels. The wicked rulers are astonished by their boldness. Notice the boldness comes up multiple times in the text. Don't miss it. They're astonished by their boldness, by the boldness of Peter and John as you see it there in verse 13, chapter 4. So they move their opposition to what? Intimidation. 
They now threaten the men. You find that threatening in verse 17, verse 18, verse 21. This means they were commanded to completely stop all teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, verse 18. These Jewish rulers threatened the men with physical harm if they did not obey their rules and, and if they kept preaching Christ. Intimidation. Intimidation through threats of future physical punishment is where the context is as we enter now verse 23. Now we can see that it was Peter and John who were released from prison and the opposition of the scared Jewish rulers and leaders. They're scared. They're scared of Jesus. They're scared of this reality. And that's why they're doing this. The gospel scared them because the people were praising God for what had happened through the name of Christ. So these real threats of physical harm, persecution, and intimidation are what Peter and John report to the church that is gathered in verse 23. This is what they're reporting to them. They're saying, hey guys, this is what we did. This is what we saw. This is how it went down. And they told us, don't do this again. And if they do this, they're going to beat us, probably kill us. They're in trying to intimidate us. This is the report by which they're giving to the gathered group there. This is the context. Gospel celebration mingled with intimidation of looming gospel persecution. How will the early church respond? Will she cower in fear or patiently and wisely move forward in gospel faithfulness? Will they submit to their governing authorities who are clearly commanding them to go against God, as Peter had already said in chapter 4, verses 19 to 20? Or will they go against their governing authorities in a God-honoring way? Well, let's find out the answer. Let's keep moving. That's the context of this powerful prayer. Now let's start in verse 24 and start to see the content of this powerful prayer. Prayer. Now, in verses 24 through 30, we see the response, the responses of the early church to these real threats from their government. Do not miss it. They did not disrespectfully turn towards their government in anger or even accusation, but instead they humbly and joyfully turned to God in dependence and delight. Notice their focus is not pointing their finger at their persecutors, but lifting their hand to their providential provider and protector. Oh, there's something to be said about that. There's something for us to learn from this. And they are modeling so much for us. Their first response is not what we would consider. They lifted their voices together in prayer. They turn humbly and joyfully in delighting and depending upon God. This is so encouraging and so instructive on how we should respond when gospel-driven opposition comes upon us, either from individuals, even within our own family, within our own community, within our job, or even if it comes, God forbid, from governmental officials the first response we should always have is to pray. Is to pray. But their prayer is not what we might expect. Therefore, it is imperative for us to, to clearly see the content of this powerful prayer. This prayer is shocking. 
It is shocking if seen rightly in its context because, don't miss it, this prayer is almost all, almost the entire thing is all praise to God. Did you catch that? It's almost all praise. There's literally one little minor petition in the whole prayer. Not sure we would pray that way. We would be lining out our petitions. And Lord, forgive us. And Lord, protect us. And Lord, keep us financially secure. And keep us, our car running. And Lord, protect us from this. And we'd have this whole line of prayers. And thank you that you're sovereign. They do the direct opposite. They have one simple petition. And it's not what you think. But the focus is in one direction. Oh, I don't know about you, but I learn a lot from this. I'm convicted a lot by this. And I'm also comforted. It's so helpful. So helpful. Powerful example for us. First notice in verse 24, it is a prayer of praise. Watch it. For the power of God. This is the content now. We're, gonna, we're just going to strip this thing down and try to see it that we might emulate it on all the appropriate levels. It's praise for the power of God. The prayer begins in verse 24 as it says, notice it, and I quote, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, unquote. Here we see the reason why this is a, a powerful prayer because it is directed toward and focused on the all-powerful God. The word sovereign Lord is a translation for a Greek word that means one who holds complete power and authority over another. In this context, it speaks of God as the sovereign Lord, here you go, of the universe. The one who has absolute authority to rule over all and the one who has absolute power to control all. That is exactly who the Sovereign Lord is, as this prayer of praise makes clear. The Sovereign Lord made the heavens, He made the earth, He made the sea, and if there is any doubt about the depth of His authority and power, He made everything that exists and lives in heaven, on earth, and throughout the sea. Listen, dear loved ones, do not miss this. Again, just bleeding from this text, so many practical points of, of meditation and application. Strength and suffering. Hope while hurting. Perseverance through persecution. Faithfulness in the face of real fear. Where does it come from? How does it start? How do I pull myself back when I've been caught in the vortex of suffering and been confused and pulled away. You know what that's like. I know what that's like. That's where we live. And we're often in this vortex that, that sucks us out of the right perspective. How do I come back? How do I realign, recalibrate my life so that I'm not pulled away from the Lord and worried and focused on this world and my problems? I'm glad you asked. Real Focus in the midst of real fear begins with focusing on and resting in the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. This is it, dear lover. This is an anchor for the afflicted soul. This is so much of what we need to be reminded, not in one sermon, but every day. 
Every single day we need to, before our feet hit the floor next to our bed, we should start out, oh, sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth. So many of our temporary struggles, even the afflictions of our own mind and heart that we all deal with privately would be dealt with if we just literally, not just voiced it, but out of a heartfelt faith in it, oh, sovereign Lord changes everything. This brings biblical equilibrium even amidst the tornado. Here they are. They're praying. They're getting it. A robust belief in God's sovereignty grounds you in the midst of intimidation and opposition while guarding your heart against sinful fear. And these are the struggles we have. We know this. We, we live this. This is who we are. Like it or not, we may not all look the same. We may not all act the same by way of our personalities and our, and our financial status and our homes, but we're all the same. Just get over it and start embracing it. We're all of like nature. We are fickle at best. We are wayward sheep who are quick to run in the opposite direction of Proverbs 3, 5, 6, 7, and 8 which teaches us, exhorts us to do exactly what we won't ever do. And that is what? We are natural in our default mode is to trust in our own understanding, follow our own emotions, think our own thoughts, and somehow create our own God, which is us. And that's why Solomon told his boys, don't do that. Don't you trust in yourself. You'll be running off after all kinds of craziness. He says, no, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. You lean not on your own understanding. In all your dreams, thoughts, plans, whatever it is you do, you acknowledge Him, and only then will you have equilibrium. He'll make your path straight. He'll make everything clear. He'll put the path before you. He already has in your word. Trust Him. Follow Him. Do this. But sadly, that's not what we do, is it? We understand the fight. And that's why we need to be reminded of this. And we need to build a robust belief in the sovereignty of God. Listen, the truth of God's absolute sovereign authority, power, and control over all is so foundational to life and so foundational to the Bible that it starts and ends with this truth. The entire Bible is built around this and upon this. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Sovereign Lord. Revelation 21 and 22, Sovereign Lord. You're finishing up Daniel. What, what is the culmination of Daniel? Sovereign Lord. It's like everywhere you go because this is who He is. And remember, this is a book not, not about us, ultimately. It's about Him. And when we know Him, we get to know who? Us. And we see we need a sovereign Lord, and we must trust in a sovereign Lord. All these things permeate, permeate the Scriptures. Trust in an all-powerful and all-sovereign God always brings hope for the hurting. Psalm 146, verses 5 to 7, is likely what is driving this part of the prayer in this passage when they lift their arms and say, O sovereign Lord, listen to Psalm 146, 5 to 7, and I quote, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the, the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, 
and who gives food to the hungry, unquote. Sounds much like our prayer. Not only that, but the Bible is clear that faithful evangelism while under persecution is always driven by a strong belief in the sovereign lordship of God. Acts chapter 14, 15, Acts chapter 17, 24, Revelation 14, 7, just a few verses that demonstrate how vital the sovereign lordship of God is while proclaiming the gospel, especially when under intimidation and opposition. What happens? What happens when your prayer is rooted in the sovereign Lord? Well, I'll tell you, it displays and drives deep into the heart an undying, unequaled confidence in God, not yourself. This is so important. A God who has all power and a God who has all authority to rule over all can handle all my problems and any persecution, any difficulty that comes my way. And he can handle it a lot better than I can. Now I'm not enamored with my problems. I'm not overwhelmed by my problems. Actually, if you get this right, guess what happens? You'll become underwhelmed by your problems. Oh, that's it? He made the heavens and the earth. Cancer? Okay. All right, Lord. Wasn't my plan, so you're in charge. I'm yours. My life is yours. My time is yours. So, Father, this is, this is in your hands. Yeah, I know. How am I going to provide? How am I going to get through this? How am I going to lead through this? I don't know, but, Lord, you know. And you're going to give me the wisdom, and you're going to give me the strength, and you're going to give me the ability. So, so sovereign Lord, this is you. Uh, I'm doing what Peter said, casting my cares upon you, Lord. You've got this. But that's not what we do, is it? It's not our natural default. It's, oh, sovereign Lord, how am I going to get through this? Right? I mean, you get it. This is where we live. Oh, church, but that's not good. How is the world going to see the glory of God when we act just like them? How is the world going to look and see the excellencies of Christ to see how Christ literally transforms everything in your life when everything in our life is no different than the world. See, that's why we're to stand and we're to proclaim and then we're to live amidst the people. That's why we're to be in the world. We're, to, we're the light of the world. We take the light of the world, which is Christ, into the darkness of the world. And we must suffer. It's appointed to us to suffer. We have to suffer for many reasons, and one of them is so everyone around us can watch us suffer for Christ. And then the world goes, wait a minute, how, 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 why are you not mad at us? Why are you not grumbling and complaining? Why do you come in here praising God every day when this is happening and that is happening? Ah, 1 Peter 3.15, I'm glad you asked. Because I'll tell you about the hope I have in Christ. And now that you asked, you're going to sit down and you're going to hear it, and I'm going to preach. See, this is how this works. And here we are, the early church, demonstrating for us, notice, it's praise for God's power. But not only that, church, this is big. This is, this is not normally embraced in the modern church's prayer life. But it's praise for the power of God, but it's also, look at it, starting in verse 25, it's praise for the promise of God. 
the promise of God. Starting in verse 25, we see the prayer transitions from giving praise for God's power to praising God for his predictive promises. In verses 25 to 27, we see once more now how. Write this down if you don't already know it, and if you know it, write it down and remind yourself daily. It is the promises of Scripture that are meant to ground and guard our prayers. It is the promises of Scripture, the promises of almighty, all-powerful, sovereign Lord. It is those promises that are, that are to ground and guide our prayer life. It's not our thoughts or even our desires. It's His promises, His precious promises given to us in His powerful Word that are meant to literally define our prayers, direct our prayers, determine our prayers. And that's what we see. Prayer is really, ultimately, all about the promises of God. We pray in the will of God when we pray according to the promises of God. Prayer is all about speaking to God in light of what He has spoken to us through His Word. Praying rightly is always about praying biblically, praying with Praying through and praying by what God has already said in the Scriptures. Listen, do not miss it. Prayer, true prayer that pleases God is never about waiting for, for God to speak, but responding to what God has already spoken in the Scriptures. So much of the church wants to get together and just wait. You know, waiting. He's spoken. Open your Bible. And then you can pray. Pray in light of what He has said, not in light of what you might hear. God forbid, whatever that is. And too many in the church, I'm just going to sit and wait for the still, small voice. No, you're not. You're going to open the book and hear the powerful voice that sounds like many rushing waters, the Word of God. Then you'll know how to pray. And this is what the church does. We pray according to the promises of God. The person of God, the promises of God as proclaimed in the Bible, they, they must propel and even protect our prayers so that they are productive and pleasing to God. This is what Jesus was speaking about in John 14. 13 and 14, about praying in His name, meaning according to His will, according to His promises and His plan. And this is what Jesus perfectly modeled for us when the disciples said, teach us how to pray. Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. All that you have promised, everything in the Lord's prayer is driven by a promise God had already made. Daily bread, protection from oppressors, protection from temptation. Literally, Jesus just takes the promises of God and turns them into prayers. Because again, you're guaranteed answers to your prayers in the way that God has designed when you pray according to what God has promised to do. It's so helpful. It's such a blessing. Verses 25 to 26 help us further. They help us further here as it gives us the predictive promise made in verse 27. 
gives us the predictive promise fulfilled. So you have the promises made in verses 25 to 26, and you have the predictive promise fulfilled in verse 27. And this is huge for praying while dealing with persecution, for this brings clarity to your life. Confusion and consternation amidst persecution is far too often normal for us, but it need not be. The church should never, ever be confused by persecution. Why? Because we've been promised persecution. We've been promised. We already know these things will come. I already know some of you will lose your job. I already know some of you will suffer in ways you can't imagine, I can't imagine, but the Bible's already told us that. We're guaranteed that. And it's a need for us, not just for the lost to see Christ in us, but it's a need for us to grow in our dependence of Christ. There's so many things in the sovereign plan of God that involve suffering, persecution, opposition, difficulty. What God promised in the past, right here in our passage, do you see it? Look at it. What God promised in the past drives the church's prayers in the present. And we see it. Thus, they're resting on the promise of God. And that begins to bring clarity. It begins to eviscerate confusion. It begins to deal with any complaining and issue. Now look at verse 25. Look at it. Let's look at the promise. I've made a lot about it. Is it there? Oh, it's right there. Look at it. Verse 25. It's a prayer of praise driven by a predictive promise made by David a thousand years earlier. This passage in verse 25 flows out of Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. And by the way, if you're looking at this, this is a freebie for you to write down, but this is worth it. Don't miss the clarity here of the dual authorship of Scripture. Did you pick it up in the text? Do you see it? Very important foundational fact is the dual authorship of Scripture. Christ is sovereign Lord who is also sovereign Lord of creation and revelation. Do you see it? Notice, Sovereign Lord who also is the one by the mouth of David by the Holy Spirit. So you have the dual authorship of Scripture. You have David writing Scripture by the mouth of the Holy Spirit. So you have this dual authorship of Scripture showing yet again that God is sovereignly in control of everything, including revelation. That's another sermon for another day, but put that in your hermeneutics tool belt. That'll bless you. That'll protect you from a lot of the nonsense out there. Some of you have taken my TSI hermeneutics class. I'm telling you, the dual authorship of Scripture is massive in guarding your heart against so much false teaching that's out there. Enough on that. Now, back to the predictive promise here in verses 25 to 26. Notice, the early church is praying in light of what David wrote a thousand years earlier in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. David there in Psalm chapter 2 is serving as a type of Christ who spoke of the, of the future attack that would be gathered against the Lord's anointed King Jesus, the Christ. This attack would be a collaboration of sorts between the Gentiles and the Jews, between the kings and the rulers and the people of Israel. They would all set themselves together against the Messiah in, kill, in killing Christ. So here in verses 25 and 26, we can see this predictive promise given, but in verse 27, it turns to the predictive promise fulfilled with great specificity. Verse 27 starts with the words, for truly, 
Look at the text, you'll see it. For truly, which is a Greek construction meant what? To grab attention as it gives now the reason for why they quoted Psalm 2. Verse 27 really starts like this. For there is no doubt. In the Greek, that's what it's bringing out. Which means, what David predicted has truly been fulfilled in the death of Christ. Then verse 27 goes on with great clarity to show the name, I love this, the specificity of the sovereignty of God. Where it's general in Psalm 2. Now it becomes very specific, even down to names. Down to names. The people talked about generally in Psalm 2 get given even names, which is helpful. Jesus Christ is truly now, we know, the anointed one mentioned in Psalm 2. Herod and Pilate, clearly the kings and rulers. And the Gentiles, obviously the Romans. And the religious leaders and all the Jews are the peoples who plot in vain. Now we're putting the pieces together from Psalm 2 with, with great specifics which help us see this even clearer. Amazing when you think about it how Pilate and Herod were enemies, but their unjust treatment and scorn towards Christ brought them together as friends. Hatred for Christ served as a sinful means for reconciling the rulers of the Gentiles and the false king of Israel. Furthermore, the Jews even partnered with Gentiles in killing Christ, the Romans, whom they hated. And yet... In these at minutes of the crucifixion, they were friends. The Gentiles and Jews hated one another, but they had a greater hatred for Christ. Since the early church had clarity derived from the promise of God, they prayed a prayer of praise marked by clarity, not complaining and confusion. Do you see it? They're not confused by these things. They're not complaining about these things. They understand what went on with Christ is really what's driving what's going on now. And you'll see that as we turn even further. Look at verse 28. You'll see it's not only praise for the power of God, it's praise for the promise of God, but it's also praise for the plan of God. Building off the predictive promises made and fulfilled in verses 25 to 27, now they praise God for His predestined plan. If the power of God brought confidence and the promise of God brought clarity, again, they're not confused by what's happening to them. Again, I have to pause here because this, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a shepherd, as a Christian, as a brother, I see this all the time. Christians confused, dazed, like, why is this happening to me? And that should never be the case. We don't have to like it, and if you do, something's wrong with you. Right? We're not talking about that. We're not weird. We're not masochists. Okay? But we shouldn't walk around and go, why is this happening? No, we know. We live in a fallen world. We serve under a sovereign God who has guaranteed suffering in our life, and that's good for us. The heart is good. The scripture's clear. We don't run after it because God will bring it in his plan. And that's what they're saying here. They get it. Everything happened just like David said it would. And what you're going to see now is they understand that this all happened according to God's perfect plan set before the ages began, which David proclaimed. It happened to Christ, and therefore it was going to happen to us. See, it gives them clarity. It gives them confidence. But it also brings comfort. Comfort. What do you need amidst suffering, persecution, hardship? You need confidence. You need clarity. But you also need comfort. 
Comfort that God is with you. Comfort that, that he hasn't left you. That's why there's so many promises to that fact for us, because we know, God knows our frame, and it's but thus, and we need to be comforted by the very presence of God, and so they will be now as they realize none of this is outside of God's control. He's here. This is him at work. Oh, how this changes everything. They have confidence, they have clarity, and now they have comfort. Verse 28 is undeniable that all the rage of the Gentiles and all the horrific schemes of the Jews only serve to fulfill and propel the perfect plan of God, as Peter already said in Acts 2, 23. Think about it. Who really gave up Jesus? They get this. Who really gave him up? They say it right here in the text. Who really put Jesus forward to be crucified? This text makes it shockingly clear that all the horror of the cross was really by the sovereign hand of God. This changes everything for them. Because if the ultimate horror of all time, which is the cross, was by and under and over in the sense of through the sovereign hand of God, then this limited horror I'm going through is under his sovereign hand as well. And I can trust him. And I can lean on him. And I can look to him. Octavius Winslow was a faithful preacher in England during the 1800s. And he once rightfully said, who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That truth of God's loving lordship, his, his sovereign decree in delivering up Christ, look at it. That's what drives this prayer. That's the, the doctrinal anchor that holds their emotions in check in these moments. They are like people like us, like nature. Their emotions are being turned inside out. They're facing, listen, listen to the preachers as a preacher, John and Peter, uh, We're pretty much, that's all we do is preach, and now we're going to die. And think about it. They already killed our leader like 50 days ago, so we're probably going to die. Like, don't think for a moment. Like, we look at these guys as if they were like steeled men who never were afraid. That's a joke. They were fallen men just like you and I. They, They had emotions that they had to deal with. They had sins they had to kill. They had to fight with their own flesh. Hence why the scriptures are so comforting, because we see these like men like us and persevering in faith, even though they were not yet perfected. And here we can see it is not their resolve, it is not their steeled face and faith that drives them, no. It is the comfort that comes from a sovereign Lord who is powerful, who has made promises, and who has a plan that will not be stopped. And that's what drove them. And that's what we see. Look at the text. You see the term right there, predestined. And you know this well. You're taught well. And what a joy it is to preach at a healthy church. And what a blessing that is. You understand this. It means to determine ahead of time. It means to to mark out ahead of time. It, It simply speaks here of God's plan in and through Christ that was decided, that was marked out, that was like an architect. He had already drew the blueprint, if you will, Before the ages began, with certainty. This word predestined speaks of God's eternal, His exhaustive, His unchanging, His unstoppable, His 
uninfluenced, perfect determination of all things. Of all things. The Bible speaks of the awesome decree of God where He is working out everything that happens according to His eternal plan, Ephesians 1.11. You can see this reality manifested clearly in the narrative of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50.20. There you go. Opposition, persecution. How's this going to happen? And Joseph grew from the coat of many colors to the man of God. And when his brothers were scared and had man-centered theology, Joseph taught them well. Huh. You think that was you? Oh, you played a part. Your sin, you meant it from a wicked heart. But God is sovereign. He designed that for me, for you, for all of us. And as we know, looking back, for Christ, preserving the line. Sovereign. Oh, you see it. He predestined it. Isaiah declares this truth about God's unstoppable eternal plan many times to encourage his people. Isaiah 46, 9-11 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Prove it to us, God. I'm glad you asked. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, my decree, my predestined plan will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what is being said here. That which was predestined. The unstoppable plan of God. That's what's happening. That's what happened to Christ and that's what's happening to us. And do not miss it. They see their opposition directly tethered to the opposition and per persecution promised and fulfilled on Christ. They understand that what happened to Christ was not devoid of them. Thus, by the implication, the same promise of persecution was for them. So Christ knew he would die. He declared it, but he also said what? So will you. Every faithful follower of Christ will be persecuted. Romans 8.17 speaks of suffering with Christ. Colossians 1.24 speaks of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Philippians 1.29-30 says believers have been ordained to suffer for Christ. 1 Peter 4.12-13 says believers should not be surprised when persecution for Christ comes upon them. 2 Timothy 3.12 says every Christian who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus was emphatic in many passages about this. But in John 15.18-21, he said, Just as the world hated and persecuted me, so the world would hate and persecute his followers. But that reality does not discourage the early church because they drew great comfort from the unstoppable, perfect plan of God. Where even in persecution, where even in opposition, where even in being arrested and, and being warned and, and fearful intimidation, they understood God was working. God was working to bring out His glory and the believer's good, just like Paul says in Romans 8.28. Dear loved ones, listen. Grasping this mentally is easy. Grasping this wholeheartedly is a whole nother story. We're watching, and this is appropriate and poignant in light of where your pastor is, but we're watching missions in the global evangelism, the Great Commission fulfillment, continue to shrink every day. 
the need, if you will, grows every day as our eyes are open to the lost and the reality of the, of the true gospel and how, how, how sadly infrequent it is preached. And yet we're watching less and less people desire and even commit to go. And you know one of the reasons, and there's multiple reasons, one of them is fear of persecution, fear of this. Listen, do you understand <laughs> this actually helped the early missions movement? So when the early missions movement was, was really ramping up and, and you had the um, Cambridge Seven and, and the early years of, of the beginning of missions movement, um, they were, had a desire for, for missions, but guess who it was that held them back? Their parents. And guess why? Fear of going abroad and living their life and being persecuted, being killed, or doing a worthless endeavor by which you're not comforted or financially blessed. You know what changed all that? Somebody within the Cambridge Seven, a healthy young man died one day, and it woke him up, and they said, wait a minute, this is a healthy guy. He died. He died right here. That means we can all die at any time. Why would I want to die here in the comforts of the world when I could go over there and serve Christ with my life? They were awakened to this reality. You're, you're, we're all going to die. We're all going to be persecuted. We're all going to deal with suffering. Why be afraid of dealing with it over there? You're going to deal with it here as well. Give your life to Christ. Serve Christ. Go for Christ, wherever that may be. But don't let your own thoughts sway you from that. Look at these people. They were not hindered by this. They didn't stop and say, well, we'll just be quiet. We'll preach an ecumenical message We'll just say it's some nebulous name. We won't use the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just say God. You know, that reality is pretty big in missions right now. Trying to infect Islam from within. It's a terrible idea. And it's permeating modern missions. Where it's trying to see true converts that are not true converts. Where they will stay in the Islamic church, stay in the Islamic faith as almost spies. And then they'll go in, they'll worship Allah, they'll continue to worship Allah, they won't use anything, they'll talk about Jesus being the Messiah, but never the Son of God, because that's kind of off with your head. And the idea is then you can actually have impact on them. No, that's not the gospel, and that's not how the gospel works. We go forward, persecution or not, proclaiming the name of Christ. And if persecution comes in the name of Christ, you know what? The Lord will use that to spread the fame of Christ. And that's all my life's about. Whether by life or by death, Paul says in Romans 14, we live for Christ. These early church, they got it. They get it. You can see it. You can see it. Here, we've reached now all of that. And we're still talking about prayer. And I haven't given you one request. Just praise. A lot could be said about that. But I'll move on. Notice the petition. We've seen the praise. Praise for his power. Praise for his promises. Praise for his plan. Now they petition. And look what they petition him for. Ministry boldness and ministry blessing. By now it should have grabbed your attention that they have been praising God this entire time. What have they praised Him for? It's very instructive. They praised Him for His person. They praised Him for His promise. They praised Him for His plan. And they're not focusing on their real and present problem. It's there. And it's present. It's right there. But they're not focused on that. 
This is huge in driving a powerful prayer. Do you focus on God's power, God's promise, God's plan? Or is your focus on you and your problem? Look at verse 28. As the request is so simple, it's actually almost missed. They say, Lord, look on these threats and cause us to remain bold in preaching the word. Boldness here, now don't miss it. Boldness speaks of courage. That's what they're asking for. Give us the courage because they don't have it naturally. Do you see it? Lord, we're naturally not bold. We know who we are. It's called humble prayer. I know who I am. Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. But Lord, give me the courage. Give me the courage. Give me the confidence. Give me the clarity in the midst of an intimidating situation. Oh, sovereign Lord, please grant it to us. Essentially, they are pleading with God to make them fearless, don't miss it, amidst looming fear. That's why they pray this. If they had courage, they wouldn't ask for it. Again, sometimes we read Scripture so slanted and miss it. No, they're praying for boldness because they need it. Don't miss it. Boldness here. This is huge. Boldness is a God-given grace, not a moral virtue. Did you catch it? Boldness here in preaching the word in the face of fear, i.e. death, i.e. losing your job, i.e. in the midst of dealing with cancer and a physical suffering, or even in the context here, opposition, real-life opposition, standing up and proclaiming Christ when all could be lost, that is a grace of God. That is not something that anybody naturally has within themselves. And you're like, really? Yes, the modern church thrives off of this, thrives off of this virtue of courage. Build yourself up. Be men of God strong. Well, okay, we should be that. But that's not going to come from me. Anything of that that comes from me is going to be selfish, self-centered, and fickle. But if God gives me the strength, if God gives me the boldness, if I lean wholly and totally and depend upon Him and not myself, ooh, if I die to myself, if I slip into the shadows and throw Christ out there and it's just me and Christ and I'm preaching to Him and I'm focusing on Him, then everything else goes away and I have boldness. But I can't do that apart from Him. I can't. I'm speaking personally. I can't. I just had this the other day uh, without too many details. I had this, this comes up. I was thrown in a situation, I really do not like this, but it happens to me from time to time, and I do all I can to get out of it, but I got myself in a situation where I was called upon to preach, and it was not a nice situation, because I had to get up behind somebody else that just was not good. The whole situation was bad, the, 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 everything about it was bad, and I'm like, how am I going to get up and not be disrespectful, not, you know, it's like I'm sitting there. This has happened to me in funerals. This has happened to me in multiple places. And every time it's like fear just takes over me as a, as a preacher. It's like, Lord, I don't want to do this because I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I've got to get up and open the book and bring the word, but it's going to offend. It's going to upset. This is not going to be pretty. And Lord, I just don't want to do this. <laughs> but you know what? I got to do it. What was I praying in those moments as this person's going on? Lord, give me courage. Lord, give me courage to do what I know I've got to do. Give me the boldness. Give me the conviction. Give, Lord, just, 
just do it through me because I can't do this. Listen, that's what they're praying. They get this. This isn't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. This isn't make yourself strong. Listen, true prayer is a humble, broken dependence upon God. When you come to God and you're just like, God, I can't do this. I know I must. You're commanding me to. But God, I can't. Love my wife like Christ loved the church? Are you kidding me? Lord, she's an angel, but I'm a demon. Like, I get it. She's angelic, but Lord, I'm just a selfish sinner. How can I love her like you? Raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Father, really? That's more than I can bear in my flesh. But, oh, Lord, you'll equip me to do these things. Oh, Lord, you'll help me to do these things. This is why, George will tell you, this is why we pray nonstop, because he can't do it and I can't do it. Newsflash, neither can you. And that's why the church must be a praying church. If it's not a praying church, it's not a persuasive church, and it's never a powerful church. You know what it is? A prideful church. A church that looks around and says, look at us, look at us, look what we have done. When we should all be walking around going, look to him, because we can't do any of this. I tell our church all the time, if anything good happens in this place, it's not because of me. It's because of God's grace through his powerful word and his spirit's enabling. It's all him. Nothing to do with us. And that's why we pray. We pray because we know we can't do it. And yet we pray because we know we must. We're commanded. You see how the commands of God draw us right back to him. I was once told an awful thing that said, God will never command you to do something you can't do. Uh, excuse me? That's the entire Bible. That's the gospel. God says, you want to come to heaven? Be perfect. Go for it. Work your way up to it. But just know this, one misstep and you're going to hell. That's how you get to heaven. Go for it. Newsflash, I'm not perfect, nor are you. But Christ is. See, everything he says, what does it do? It drives us away from ourselves to him. And that's really what prayer is. Prayer is nothing more than the self-effacing, where we just, we, we just look away from ourselves and we look to him. That's why prayer is often shown with the arms raised in Scripture, right? Because it's I'm looking away from me, I'm looking away from earth, I'm looking to you, Father, because apart from you, I've got nothing, am nothing, and can do nothing. Oh, it's powerful. So here they pray for boldness. Boldness, again, the grace of God, not a moral virtue that you muster up through ongoing practice. That's what the modern church, that's what Joel Osteen, a modern false teacher will tell you. But that's not what the Bible says. They were bold already as seen in chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to you, some of you older saints, or whether that's gray-haired like me, or whether that's younger ones who might be older in the faith, do not miss this. Some of you are held back. Here you go. Don't miss it. Some of you are held back in your growth in Christ because of past victories. Notice in the text, remember I, I brought this out earlier on, I know I preached long, but I brought it out earlier and I told you, boldness, they brought it out. The Jewish leaders were amazed at their boldness. These were bold men because God had made them bold. But did they walk around and go, we were bold men, we'll be bold later. You see? Been there, done that. I got that, pastor, really? I think the Bible warns us 
Take heed lest you fall. Your past victory does not guarantee tomorrow's victory. Here we see it right here. They were bold. They were bold in proclaiming, bold in declaring, bold in standing for Christ. But their past boldness did not make them prideful. It actually drove them right back to the Lord to pray for the very thing they had just done. Because what they had just done was not of them. And they knew it. They were humble. They were broken. They were before the Lord. This is a picture of what I want our church to be. This is a picture of what I want your church, this church to be. This is a picture of what I want to be. It's so encouraging. They do not pray for personal protection. They do not pray for personal comfort. They do not pray for anything other than the boldness to continue preaching the word. Holy boldness. Holy boldness to proclaim Christ with courage in the face of persecution. Praying for personal courage, don't miss it, instead of personal comfort. Ouch. I think if we're honest, in the quietness of our hearts, most of our prayers are driven more by a desire for personal comfort. Not here. They knew what preaching Christ would bring, and it wouldn't bring comfort. It would bring condemnation, and it did, as almost all of them died, including Peter, and John was exiled because they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't. We've seen the context. I told you we would labor longer on the content, as we should. And now finally, just as we wrap this up, consider the consequences now. What's the results of this powerful prayer? Well, notice just three things, and we'll wrap this up. Three truths right here from verse 31. You see it right there in your text. Notice, number one, they pray in the name of Christ to the glory of God the Father in utter, total dependence upon His sovereignty and His sweet scriptures, the promises and plan of God, and what happens? The power of the Spirit. Notice it right in the text. The place shakes the power of the Spirit of God, the entire place shakes. It's showing what is the, what's going on. It's a, it's a visible demonstration that God is with them, that the power of God that they've already just declared, the sovereign Lord who controls the building, who controls the room, who controls everything, He just demonstrates, yeah, that's me. Watch. I'll just flick the earth just a little bit, and I'll shake it because I can do that because I'm sovereign. You see, the results of this powerful prayer is that they see the power of God. This hearkens in many ways to Exodus chapter 20 or even Isaiah 6, where you see this shaking takes place, or even in the book of Revelation throughout the tribulation, where it's repeated multiple times, and throughout the minor prophets even, where God himself shakes the heavens because he's in control. And here he is, the power of God. And he's demonstrating, I'm with you, just as Exodus chapter 20, where the Israel was on the, the foot of Mount Sinai and God was shaking the whole area with the thunder and the lightning and the loud trumpet and the, and the cloud and the fire. And I mean, it was, it's one of the scariest scenes in Scripture because if you got a right view of God, it's pretty scary when He shows up. Nobody in Scripture sees a manifestation of the Lord and ever says, my homie. No one. 
everyone does the same thing. They fall on their face as if they're dead. That's why all these ridiculous books, and please don't ever get duped into that. I went to heaven, I saw Jesus. No, no. Everybody that sees any kind of manifestation, the burning bush, there's Moses, first time. He sees, he doesn't see God, he sees the bush, a manifestation of the presence of God, just like he does in Exodus 33, where he wants to see the glory of God, and God says, you don't know what you ask. If I did that, it would consume you, but I'll let you see my tail. I'll let you see the hem of my garment as I go by, and even that overwhelms Moses. He's looking at a burning bush, and what does it say? He takes off his shoes because God says, hey, I'm not like you. You're ent you've entered into sinless presence. You are full of sin. Take off your shoes. What does Moses say? Oh, okay, God, high five. You're my man. He says he falls on his face, afraid to lift his eyes. Here, they're seeing, yes, this is the sovereign Lord, the power of the Spirit. And why must they see this? Listen, dear loved ones, we got to see it too. Because as John would say later in, the, in his first epistle, what? In the midst of persecution, in the midst of the attacks of the evil one and his minions, John says what? You must remember that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who writes that? The same guy who was in the midst of this when the room starts shaking. I, listen, I don't need the room to shake for me to know that God is powerful because he's already shaken the world. So I don't need new revelation and there will be none. I don't need some personal experience. I've got it right here. I just need to open it up because, listen, God shook the earth when he nailed his son to the cross. There's nothing, even in this experience, that can compare to what we have seen and heard in the gospel. That's why the apostle Peter who was also here in these moments, who saw the glory of Christ of which none of us have ever seen. Only one other person had a glimpse of that, and that was Paul. But there's the Apostle Peter with John, and there they are on the Mount of Transfiguration. He gets to see Christ as we will one day see him. <sighs> Hold on. Are you kidding me? Oh, he saw it all. Remember, Peter? Hey, let me make some booze over here, some tents for you. Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about, man. Just be quiet. It's like, are you kidding me? There he is talking to Moses and Elijah. The glory of Christ. But don't miss it. Your charismatic friends will say, yeah, the room was shaken. No. What does Peter say? I saw all of that, but you have something better. You have the more sure prophetic word right here. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says, I was there. I saw him. I saw him in all his glory. I saw him as he is and as you will see him. But you don't need that. You have something more sure than a personal experience. You have the ever-living, unstoppable, always shaking everything it touches Word of God. Go to the Word of God. So yes, they have the power of the Spirit. They see the room shake. We've seen the, we've seen the world shake. Open your Bible. And there it is. They see the power of the Spirit. But notice the presence of the Spirit as well. The Spirit filled them, not just the room. Again, the, Spirit, the Spirit's filling, reminding them. All this is, they've already been filled with the Spirit. They've already, this, remember, this is 
many of them speaking in tongues, the apostles in particular. And there they were, this reality of the Spirit coming and indwelling the believer. And this is just a reminder that God is not only there, but God would empower them. The filling of the Spirit is living with a conscience awareness of the presence of Christ so that the mind of Christ as given through His Word, it controls you, it guides you, it guards your life. Listen, you have that already if you're a believer in the Lord Christ. You've seen the world be shaken at the Gospel and many times over through the Word of God. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the same Spirit, I was counseling one of our older saints who's struggling with end-of-life issues, and, and I was counseling her and encouraging her that the same Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead dwells now in your body by faith. You don't need anything else because you've been given everything already. Like my charismatic friends, you need, I don't need nothing. I got everything. I got Christ. There's no voids here. I just need to trust Him. I need to follow Him. I need to obey Him. I need that. But He's given it all. And so it is. He's reminding them by His presence, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to go with you. And then look at it. The providence of the Spirit. God blessed them. They blessed them because He gave them what they asked. Look at the end of the text. So the Spirit fills the room. The room is shaken. The Holy Spirit fills them. And then they go out and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Three different times. They began in boldness. They pray for boldness. They go forward in boldness, holy boldness. The Lord answered. Why did the Lord answer? Because this is what the Lord desired. This is what he promised he would do if they would seek him and preach his word. Oh, this is encouraging. As I conclude, four ways. Four ways this passage helps us pray amidst opposition. Number one, pray in light of the power of God. This is why faithful preaching like your pastor does is paramount because what does he do week in and week out? He brings the power of God before you. Not the power of man, not the power of George, not the power of Matt, not the power of any man. He brings the power of God. He puts him right here and he just shows him to you over and over again reminding you that this is who we believe. This is who we follow. This is who we've laid our life upon. This is our God. We just sang it, behold our God. That's what every preacher is called to do. Literally, set God before the people and say, behold him, look at him. That's what I've done. That's what we're supposed to do. And so we're to pray, not just simply hear, but we are to pray in light of the power of God. What are the results if we do? How will I know that I'm praying in light of the power of God? Hmm, I'm glad you asked. Here you go. What's the fruit of that? Confidence. Confidence. Confidence in your walk. Confidence in your life. Not self-confidence. But sovereign confidence. Confidence in the God who is all-powerful. We need Christians who are confident, not prideful, but humbly dependent upon a God who is faithful. That's what biblical confidence is. It's not in me, but it's in the Lord. And praying in light of God's power, it breeds, it births confidence. Number two, pray in light of the promises of God. Pray in light of what He has said. 
Pray in light of what he has declared. Pray in light of what he has guaranteed. How will I know I'm praying in light of that? Clarity. You will not be confused. You will not be ambiguous about your life and about these things. Oh, you won't have all the answers because God purposely will hold all of that back so we live by faith, but you'll have clarity. You'll have clarity in the direction of him. Number three, pray in light of the plan of God. The plan of God. If the power of God brings confidence in God, if the promises of God brings clarity from God, because if I pray his promises, then I'm filled with his word, now I know what to do, then the plan of God brings courage by God. Every single person that truly believes in the predestined, sovereign, unstoppable, inexhaustible plan of God has courage. That's why true belief in sovereign grace does not hamper true evangelism. It actually fuels it. Fuels it. That's why the greatest evangelists throughout history have always been men who embraced and stood upon sovereign grace because it drove them in the face of their own fear. They didn't trust themselves or their methods or even their message. They trusted in the plan of God who said, you preach by the Spirit's power, I will, I will save. I will save my own. And they went even with their own life. Number four, pray in light of the purposes of God. The purposes of God. What's the fruit of playing, praying in light of the purposes of God? Commitment to God. You will be resolved. Your face will be set like a flint to kill sin, fight for holiness, and to love one another when the purposes of God are before you because that's His purposes. Instead of praying in light of the purposes of man, which yield compromise, you pray in light of the purposes of God, and that always yields commitment. Despite looming persecution through current opposition and intimidation, the early church they strive together. They served together. They prayed together. They strived together in the Scriptures. They prayed together upon the Scriptures. And they served together to the glory of God in the proclamation of the Scriptures. Is it any different for us, church? We're called to do the same. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to pray. We have no right to come into your presence. We have no right to take your name upon our lips apart from Christ. We are a sinful people. On our best day, we are filled and covered in filthy rags. But you, O oh Lord, are a gracious and merciful God. You've given us Christ. Now help us, Father amidst whatever suffering, whatever opposition, whatever persecution, whatever difficulty you bring, both now and forevermore, help us, follow, Father, to emulate your early church in praying powerful prayers that focus on you and what you've said and what you will do. Father, we love you, but again, only because you first loved us. So help us to love you more, that we might enjoy you forever. Bless us now as we go our separate ways. Bless George as he ministers in Africa, we pray. Protect him. Bring him home safely, Father, to us, that we might serve even further with him and by your grace through the guidance that your shepherd brings. 
Bless us now, Lord, we ask. For the glory of the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.